0: This, this is the Buck, Buck Sexton, Sexton Show. Show, where the mission, where mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Your You're a great America again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It
1: is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill back in the Freedom Hut, filling in for Buck while he's on assignment in China. As always, I want to thank him for trusting me with this microphone. It's actually an honor. On this Wednesday, the 15th of May, 2019, we have a lot of ground to cover. This show is going to be all about 2020. It's going to be about the issues that will decide the election. It's going to be about the contenders competing for the Democratic nomination to take on President Trump in the general election. For those of you that don't know, once again, my name is Harlan Hill. I run a political consulting and advocacy firm called Logan Circle Group. I also sit on the advisory board for President Donald J. Trump's re-election campaign. And when I have some spare time, you'll find me in places like this, on radio or on Fox News Channel or CNN, as a surrogate for the president. Obviously, I spent a lot of time thinking about this movement. And for three years, the Democrats and the media have peddled conspiracy theories about Russian collusion. They've, for three years, told outrageous, fantastic lies that President Donald J. Trump was even a Russian agent. For three years, they undermined the credibility of our elections and our democracy and the presidency simply because they hate President Donald J. Trump. They called for an investigation, a special counsel, and they got it. And after that investigation, which was the largest and most expensive investigation of its kind in American history, completely and totally exonerated President Trump and everyone on the 2016 campaign, they kept lying to you. They kept lying to you, the voter, and slandering President Trump and the rest of Team Trump. There's a lesson here, and it goes beyond the Russian hoax. But the Russian hoax itself, let's focus on that for a second, is what happens when you take on the establishment. The swamp will stop at nothing to destroy you and everyone around you. That's not melodrama. It's true. They've forgotten you. They don't care about you. They're focused on the issues that matter on the coast. And so, so many people have had their lives and reputations tarnished by these false accusations and irreparable damage has been done to our democratic institutions in the process, all because they don't like President Trump and what he stands for. If the establishment wins in 2020, they will retake control like you've never seen before. America, as you know it, will be dead. Freedom and justice will be reserved for a few select people. Your liberty and your rights will be eroded. And together with their accomplices and the dishonest fake news media, the establishment will never allow America to be great again. Now, at this point, you may be asking yourself, Harlan, isn't the Russian hoax nonsense, isn't that over? Well, I'm not just focused on this one, this one issue of gross abuse of power by Democrats. This is just one example, but it applies to everything they're doing right now. Everything Democrats are doing is designed to harm Republicans and the president at the expense of American democracy, liberties, and freedoms. And there's no better example of this than the Democratic rhetoric designed to divide us into ever smaller Insular minority groups. Just this Tuesday, Linda Sarsour, the nasty and offensive anti-Semitic congresswoman, started attacking all white women, all white women in Georgia, just about, for the passage of pro-life legislation, tweeting, quote, While folks are debating tactics to respond to Georgia's heartbeat bill, let's remember that 76% of white women in Georgia voted for Brian Kemp over Stacey Abrams. That's where the work needs to happen, she continues. White women continue to uphold the patriarchy. Joining me to discuss, this is the Daily Caller News Foundation's Henry Rogers. Henry, how you doing, man?
2: Hey, Harlan, how are you? Thanks for having
1: me. Absolutely. So, Henry, <laughs> help me make sense of I the mean. It just seems like they're focused on continuing to double down on identity politics designed to divide us and distract us instead of coming up with a real comprehensive solution to, uh, to oh. the nation's problems.
2: Yeah, without question. I mean, uh, Linda Sarsour is a known anti-Semitic, as you said earlier, uh, but yet she still has a platform in the Democratic Party, and you'll see her often on Capitol Hill. I've had dozens of interactions with Linda Sarsour, and I can tell you personally, uh, she, she is an anti-Semite who all she wants to do is take down conservatives, and she'll find any way to do that. And the way that she found it useful is by pushing hate, hate speech and anti, uh, anti-Semitic slurs and and, and, and this, this abortion tweet last night, which was horrific. She basically said that every single white person, white women in Georgia was a threat and that and, and that they needed to take out these white women in order uh, in order to stop uh, in order to stop the pro-life movement. Now. This is the Democratic Party, so this is what you're dealing with. Now, this is the threat, because people are listening to people like Linda Sarsour. They think of her as a, a leader of the party, someone to look up to, and that's a real threat. If Trump does not get elected in 2020, you're going to have people like Linda Sarsour uh, who are going to be talking as, 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 a, as messengers of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. mean, legitimate messengers, anti-Semitic,
1: uh, hostile people running yeah. the party. How do the Democrats think they have any chance of winning if they're going to take on all white women? (laughs) I mean, how does this make any sense? Like, this didn't work last go around, like trying to be, you know, play the race card endlessly to divide us. um, It didn't work last time is, you know, you talked to a lot of people on the Hill. I mean, you're a reporter for the Daily Caller uh, News Foundation. Have you noticed any change in, in tactic over there or are they doubling down on this failed strategy? Oh, they're doubling down, and it's it's kind of it's kind of just amusing to watch it. Really, it really is,
2: Harlan. When you're walking down the the Senate hallways and you'll ask these senators questions, uh, most of which uh, who I'm talking about are running for you know office in 2020 against to t- try to take on Trump here, um, they're all saying the same things. They all got, have the same message, and they're all sticking to the same uh, talking points, which is basically that Trump's a racist, uh, Trump's a bigot. And that we want to take your guns, and <laughs> I mean they, they yeah. all have they they all have the same message. And, I, and my 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 thought on that is: is this going to work in in like you know the middle of Iowa? Is this going to work in you know mid, middle America? Is this yeah. how are the how are the voters going to react to this message? Because we saw that a lot with Hillary Clinton pushing the same kind of the uh, same kind of rhetoric, but yet it didn't work out for her. So how, how is it how is it going to work out in twenty twenty? Well, and uh, I, I remember... I don't think any of them have found that
1: out yet. No, I, absolutely not. And, Henry, I mean, you, you really got a lot of national attention in the viral video when you were asking Bernie Sanders some pretty basic and very respectful questions in the Capitol uh, complex. And, you know, Bernie pretended to be on his phone. Uh, you know, he, he, <laughs> did, did he also threaten you? Did he threaten to have you uh, removed or something? What had what, what, that all oh, go down? So, so he, he didn't threaten me. Senator Bob Menendez threatened me. Okay. Uh,
2: he threatened to call the police on me for asking a question about the Green New Deal. I mean, and, and this is the thing. Democrats don't like to answer questions from conservative leaning outlets. Even if my question was, which it was, a softball question asking him how he would vote on the Green New Deal. Just a simple question. He said that he would call the police on me due to where I work. And it's just, it's it's stuff like that. That's where the Democratic Party is. That's where they're headed. And that's what needs to be stopped uh, in 2020. Otherwise, I don't know if this country is going to turn out too well.
1: Well, and something that stuck with me is, I actually saw this on your Twitter feed, is that um, presidential candidate John Delaney spokesperson said in response to many of the Democrats pulling out of Fox News town halls, he said, um, if Democrats want to um, uh, get Trump out of the White House, they have to start talking to people who voted for him. And um, I, I, it seems very short-sighted for Democrats that they're unwilling to go and speak to Republican voters. Um, yeah, it is, yeah. Go ahead.
2: I thought, I thought that the reason why I tweeted that out and I reached out to Delaney's spokesman was because I thought that was interesting because he was kind of the first candidate to kind of break off from that and kind of take a shot um, at another candidate in the race and say, listen, like... Uh, if Fox News doesn't want to, if Fox, if you don't want to go on Fox News, I would gladly take the attention because yeah. he sure as hell can need the attention first off. Yeah. Uh, cause no one even knows who John Delaney is. He doesn't have a chance, but, yeah. um, second off, why, why are these Democrats refusing national, uh, att- coverage from the most watched channel in, in this country? I mean, it's not even makes sense. It's like, who is running your campaign? Why would you not go on? And also, I would just like to say, I think that the people moderating those campaigns for Fox News, like Brett Baer, Martha McCallum, um, they have been more than fair. Even so, so fair that Republicans have been mad that they've been asking some of the questions that they've been asking. So, um, Democrats really are just, I'm not seeing anything positive, no signs. No signs of positivity for them in
0: 2020.
1: So there's a trend here. Okay, so let's break down like sort of the Democratic playbook. First, they attack Republicans and Republican voters calling us, you know, uh, defenders of the patriarchy, racist bigots. Uh, then they move forward. They start attacking conservative reporters that ask them very respectful, decent questions. And then they elect to boycott entire media outlets uh, because they don't want to a- answer relatively, I mean, e- extraordinarily fair and unbiased lines of questioning, um, you know, from an outlet like Fox News, and instead right. they'd rather only speak to uh, voters that they already have, sympathetic voters, at places like CNN, um, uh, with questions that are asked almost as softballs. You know, if you if you watch any of like, for instance, if you watch like the James Comey town hall with CNN, I mean, like they, they, it was they were they were layups. You know, I mean, it was so oh easy. My lord, yeah, I yeah. can't even I can't even bear watching it. So uh, I, this, is, this, this belies a degree of intellectual dishonesty on the Democratic side. And the reason that I open this show up with the Russian collusion narrative is because that is exactly why Democrats never got any closure on why they lost in 2016. It's because they were in complete and utter denial about why they lost. First it was the racists, then it was Putin. You know, like they never came to terms with, oh maybe our party is ideologically bankrupt and we have not presented a plan a platform that is palatable, palatable to the middle of america you know and they and they still don't i mean we're 3 no, years not. later and they still don't have it
2: they have nothing and they're all sticking to the same message i mean i'm telling you Harlan, this is it's going to be a slaughter in 2020 unless some, unless something gets together for that unless someone gets themselves together and puts a message out for themselves yeah. uh that's different from the rest of the group because right now you've got a bunch of uh incompetent people who seem to have inc- incompetent campaign managers yeah. um, refusing national attention, millions yeah. and millions of viewers. so yeah. well uh,
1: Henry uh, before you grind uh, where can we find more of your your work? uh please follow me at uh
2: on Twitter if you guys are on twitter at uh, henry rogers d c and please go to the Daily caller. Uh, and just click my bio page, and you'll be reading about all the news going on on the crazy swamp of the Capitol Hill uh, that we live in here in beautiful uh, District of Columbia. So, uh, thanks again for having me on, Harlan. Absolutely.
1: Well, I got to give Henry major props because this guy goes down to Capitol Hill all the time, and he has to take on Democrats. And I, I, I say that unfortunately because he's just asking very basic questions. And if you go and you watch any of these viral videos where he's whether it's uh, Senator Menendez or Senator Sanders, asking very basic and respectful questions. Um, and, and they get they get hostile almost immediately. Um, and so I give him a lot of credit for going down there and taking him on and uh, and reporting to, to his loyal followers at the Daily Caller. So anyway, thank you, Henry. Um, we'll, we'll have you back soon. We'll be back after this quick break with more of the lines are open. So give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. So if you were here for the last segment, we sort of touched on sort of the continuation of Trump derangement syndrome and how I think that is going to imperil the Democrats going into 2020. And later in this hour, we have an esteemed Democratic consultant, uh, a friend of mine actually, and a fellow South Carolinian that's going to join us and try to break down some of this. I'm going to lay out why I think that his strategy for the Democrats winning is wrong, and why I think President Donald Trump is uh, well-positioned to win re-election in 2020. But one thing that stuck with me is that radicalism, radicalism permeates the Democratic Party. Congressional Democrats are more radical than they have ever been. And Speaker Pelosi refuses to acknowledge how out of control her caucus is. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is either rusty with her arithmetic or she's in full-blown denial. The radicals are starting to take over the Democratic Party. They're not just progressives and socialists. In many cases, they're anti-Semites, full-blown anti-Semites. I never thought that we would confront this in the modern Democratic Party. I thought that this was an issue of the past. And during a recent interview, Pelosi scoffed at the idea that her party is sliding further to the left. She, in fact, argued that there are only a handful of socialists in her caucus. She's just wrong. It doesn't take a PhD in mathematics to realize that these estimates of, like, five socialists is just flat-out wrong. There are more than five socialists running for president of the United States on the Democratic side of the aisle. She's delusional. She's straight-up delusional. While many Democrats... Don't openly identify as socialists. Dozens, dozens of them openly support various outrageous socialist proposals pitched by the most radical politicians in Washington. Just take a look at uh, AOC's Green New Deal, which estimates show will cost American taxpayers a jaw-dropping $93 trillion. Although the proposal did not get much traction in the last year, over 91 House members, far more than five, 91, 91 House members backed the Green Dream. And many leading Democratic presidential candidates are right there with him. In fact, support for the Green New Deal has nearly tripled just since December. This is a clear sign that the radical wing of the Democratic Party is rapidly gaining influence. Echoing aoc's own hyperbolic perspective on this uh cory booker spartacus as he likes to be known what an egomaniac has even compared the green new deal with fighting nazis just this guy's this guy's out of his mind arguing that america must take the lead on combating climate change no matter how much it might cost he said quote our planet is in peril and we need to be bold there's a lot of people blowing back on the Green New Deal. They're going, oh, it's impractical. Oh, it's too expensive. All this. He continues, when the planet has been in peril in the past, we came forward to save the Earth from the scourge of Nazi and totalitarian regimes. We came forward. I mean, this guy, I mean, he, he lives in a fantasy world. And it's actually terrifying that this guy's running for president and has some support. So whether Speaker Nancy Pelosi likes it or not, the neo-socialist have fully infiltrated the Democratic Party, particularly within her own House majority. Some leading Democratic candidates are even endorsing the concept of reparations. This is an unhinged leap to the left that would have fundamentally divided our country. Even Barack Obama said that this was unrealistic. Just last month, in fact, Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders boasted that many of the radical and extreme ideas that he touted during the 2016 campaign had now become mainstream within the Democratic Party. So, no matter how much Democrats at the DNC and Speaker Pelosi try to deny the fact that radicalism is now embraced and adopted by more than just a handful of Democrats in Congress, and the Speaker knows this. So, unfortunately for Pelosi, neither denial nor optimistic arithmetic will save the Democratic Party from plunging headlong into socialist oblivion. They need a course correction to bring them back in line with the mainstream of America. We'll we'll be right back after this quick break. I want to hear from you guys. The phone lines are open. Give us a call at 844-900-2825. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show.
0: he's holding the line for america buck sexton is back
1: welcome back you're listening to the buck sexton show i'm harlan hill filling in for buck while he's on assignment in china the phone lines are open so give us a call at 844-900-2825 that's 844-900 buck we'll be taking calls later in the show the trump revolution is the most ambitious revolution in generations here in the united states Our expectations were really high coming into this administration. Regardless, we've actually accomplished a lot in a short period of time. The economy is booming. For the first time in more than a decade, growth is exceeding 3% regularly, quarter to quarter. Four million new jobs, actually more than that, have been created since President Trump became president. More Americans are employed now than ever before in American history. Unemployment claims are the lowest in 50 years. We have record low African-American unemployment, Hispanic unemployment, Asian unemployment, and female unemployment. We have over 500,000 new manufacturing jobs, a feat the Democrats said was impossible. We have over 100,000 new oil and gas jobs, a feat the Democrats said once again was impossible. Wages are going up materially, a feat the Democrats said was impossible. And even the New York Times had to admit, just this month is happening. We've had massive deregulation. For every new regulation added since President Trump has become president, 22 have been scrapped. We had the biggest tax cuts in a generation, $5.5 trillion in tax cuts, 60% of which is going to families. We've doubled the child tax credit. We cut the Obamacare individual tax mandate. We renegotiated trade deals. We've withdrawn from bad trade deals. We've got multiple... uh, members of the Supreme court added. So if you're conservative, you love that U S oil production is at the highest level in American history. The United States is now the largest crude oil producer in the world. The U S has become a net neutral gas exporter for the first time in six decades. We moved the U S embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. We withdrew from the Iran deal. We held peace talks with North Korea. We imposed sanctions on, on Venezuela dictator, Nicolas Maduro. We responded to the use of chemical weapons by the Syrian regime. We defeated ISIS. We levied tough new sanctions on Russia We rebuilt and modernized the U.S. military with a massive new investment that they said was woefully needed. We've given members of our military the largest pay raise in nearly a decade, and we're finally making NATO pay their fair share for the common defense. This president, President Donald Trump, is killing it. So joining me to explain why we should turn our back on this amazing progress is my good friend and fellow South Carolinian, Democratic Consultant. Antoine C. Wright. You've probably seen him on Fox News. Antoine, how you doing?
3: I'm good, Harlan. How are you?
1: Doing all right. So you are probably the expert on the Democratic primary process in South Carolina and, and beyond, too, this cycle. I mean, we see you all over Fox News, and I think your your, your commentary is really insightful. Um, as you look at this field, who do you think is doing the best job of providing an alternative To the platform and the successes of President Trump on the Democratic side of the aisle?
3: Well, I can honestly say, Harlan, in good faith, that I think all of them are offering an alternative universe to what we see from President Trump, uh, this administration, and even more so the Republican Congress. Uh, While I heard your opening commentary, and I thought it was very insightful, um, and it reiterated some of the things we heard from others within the Republican party. The truth of the matter is when you talk about the economy, the economy is working well for some, but it's not working well for others. Um, When you talk about what's on the hearts and minds of voters uh, in the mainland, uh, I think it's quality quality of life issues where I think Republicans have really um, failed this country. Uh, And so I think that all of our candidates in their own way are offering an alternative universe to the things that matters to voters. Um, The polls have evidently shown Joe Biden has the most strength, um, both uh, in the presidential primary to this point and in terms of electability uh, against Donald Trump and the Republican Party uh, next year in a general election.
1: Well, help me understand, um, because when I look at these stats in terms of unemployment and wages going up and all that, who is who is this economy not performing for? I mean, well, because it's, along it's, demographic lines, are, it seems like everybody's been
3: people in this country, forget about trying to make ends meet. There are people putting two ends together, hoping they meet. You have mm-hmm. people working two and three jobs in this yes. country to, to do the basic things. There have been a number of studies that shown how, you know, even the African-American employment rate, even though Republicans like to uh, sing loud about it is low, it's still double the rate of other people in South mm-hmm. Carolina where we know so well um God's country. You look at counties like Marion and Dillon and some of those places. You have families who are living like second-class citizens in some cases. And so what I would say to you is while the economy is doing well for some, it's not doing well for others. And what we all know because we've seen this time and time again starting in the 2018 midterms while the Republicans want to make an economic argument, the number one issue on hearts and minds of voters are is health care. And health care is the number one reason why people go bankrupt and why families have economic hardships in this country. And so I, I like our chances in terms of the messaging strategy that we put mm-hmm. forth most of our candidates. There are some who are not probably singing the tune that will probably be competitive and sexy for a general election battle. Uh, but there's a lot of ball left to be played. Uh, I think that when we get to a place and the playing field levels out a little bit i think you'll see a more robust and intense conversation and real comparison from the candidates on what is their alternative to donald trump's policies and his uh, agenda
1: so what is the the economic message of the democratic party in in 2020
3: because i don't know if there's a there's a total message for the party because we don't have a nominee but i can tell you what democrats are uh, on the edge of their seats about what they want to talk about they want to talk about wages uh, they want to talk about health care. They want to talk about fixing a broken immigration system. They want to deal with the student loan crisis we have in this country. They want to put a, implement a practical uh, a, a gun reform policies uh, similar to what we've seen uh, passed out of the House of Representatives. I think people want to deal with environmental issues. Nobody wants to not have clean uh, running water uh, to or I'm sorry to drink or do simple things like take a shower in. I think people want to fix affordable housing, Uh, and I think people really want to get back to a sense of decency and honesty uh, in the White House, and I think there are some within my party. In fact, I think all of my party, and even a lot of in in your party, Hollywood agree that we have to turn a different page with some of the rhetoric and behavior we've seen from the White House.
1: So I think in totality, the underlying message uh, that I'm hearing from candidates for president on the Democratic side is, uh, a lot of socialist policies that address those issues that you've, you've talked about, whether it's health care um, uh, or, or, or elsewise. Um, do you think that that's compatible with the American of, electorate in the general election?
3: I, th- I think it just depends on how you define and I know that's a word that the Republicans like to throw around, but if you've seen every conversation uh when you when democratic candidates who have been asked with exception of Bernie Sanders to say uh do you agree with socialism are you a socialist, all of them have said no. And if you define Well that's because they
1: polls the word socialism and they know that it's a dirty word. That
3: doesn't mean well, that they don't like well, socialist if, policies. If, you know? If it's a if difference you define social socialist policies as a policy position that's alternative to Donald Trump that may be bold and progressive then call it socialist. But I can just tell you, as a first-generation college student with six-figure debt, after my when I finished my MBA, between undergrad and grad, dealing with the student loan crisis by uh, taxing those who uh, earn a little more, like yourself, Harlem. I think that is not a socialist policy. I think that is a bold, progressive step in the right direction. Policy. When you talk about protecting pre-existing conditions and making sure that hospitals don't close, like the five have in rural South Carolina. Uh, because Republicans did not expand Medicaid, I don't call that a socialist
1: policy. Uh, I mean, you can you can rebrand it all you want, um, but it is what it is. I mean, you're looking to tax the rich more, which is fine. You're standing behind it. You're saying it. I respect that. You know, you're you're being honest about it, and you're looking to expand um, government programs. I, I'm I'm assuming you want Medicare for all. Is that right?
3: I, I never said that. In fact, I've been on the record. Uh, maybe not with you. But I'm still on the record for saying that I am a more or less uh, fixed ACA. Uh, let's uh, protect pre-existing conditions. Uh, let's look at the Medicare population, find out where we can have some fixes. Uh, but let's really look at opportunities to really strengthen the ACA. You won't find me uh, singing the song of Medicare for All.
1: Well, see, that's, so your perspective on this, I think, is compatible with Republicans. I mean, Republicans want to come up with a solution to the ACA. I mean, they do. No, I don't think They do
3: because they. they no, had, that's not true. The president right, said that. Never mind. Republicans wanted to repeal and replace ACA uh, mm-hmm. when you all had the Congress. That was what you campaigned on for uh, for eight years. Eight but the eight president. Years of Barack Obama.
1: The president so also said that everyone should be taken care of, and, including pre existing conditions.
3: I mean, I, and, so. and No, no, that was the. You remember there was legislation filed by Republicans, mm-hmm. including AGs? Mm-hmm. Um, to not to do away with the pre-existing con- conditions. That's not the president's agenda, though. By, by, but it's the Republican Party, and he was, not, he was not pushing back on it. And as a result, the voters in the midterm election in 2018, because that was the number one issue on their mind, mm-hmm. uh, really punished the Republicans uh, back to the majority for their, for their political sins. Well,
1: see, I, I think we're actually tapping into something that's really important. I mean, on one hand, I don't think that uh, Medicare for all is uh, good policy. But I think that it's inevitable. I think that we are on a trajectory that's a collusion course with socialized medicine. I think that just the the, the the trends in American politics we're heading to that point because, uh, unfortunately, Republicans as a whole don't have real long term solutions to address the exploding cost of healthcare, and Democrats are looking to just solve this problem once and for all by expanding Medicare, ala you know, the NHS in the UK. Um, and so I, I think that's that's inevitably where we're going. When you look at something you were talking about. Um, college tuition earlier. I mean, there's no question that costs have exploded to a point that people can no longer afford it um, without incurring massive debt. And and that's not a good thing for society. Um, the One solution to that problem is to try to drive down the cost of higher education through technology and other means. Um, the democratic solution to the problem is for the government to absorb all of the costs of it, um, which is basically a blank, blank check, which means the costs will continue to explode without u- outcomes even being considered.
3: Um well, well, so let me give you, let me give you a thought process on that. Uh in South Carolina, our home state, uh Senate Democrats implemented a strategy to do free technical college for those at certain levels above the poverty um above and below the poverty index in the state. Because there's a n no, there are more jobs than there are Uh, people looking for jobs I'm sorry there are people there are a lot of jobs that cannot be filled because they do not have the necessary skill sets to fill them so when you offer free technical college for for poor people I'll just say say that way uh, people with certain income levels it gives them an opportunity to be pulled out of poverty, but it also positions them to fill some of the holes, job holes that we have in this country. And so, while people want to criticize it because it has the word "free," it has been working very well, and it received Democratic and Republican support. And it's been a growing, expanded program, and that's why we have one of the best technical college systems in the country in South Carolina. If you look at a Republican state like Tennessee, they too have free technical college. And so while you may bark at the fact of the word free college because it's, uh, because it's sexy to do on your side of the aisle, but in some cases that is not a bad thing. And it fixes some of the problems that we have because we know education, uh, crime, and poverty all have one common thing. They all loop in with each other.
1: Well, and listen, I'm receptive to that. I think we just have different points of view on how to solve the problem. I want to reduce costs for healthcare overall. I mean, it's clear, when you look at the trend lines for how expensive higher education college has gotten, um, I mean, it's way, it's bl- it's it's not in line with inflation at all. It blows it out of the water. So there's some reason that costs are exploding, and I don't think that we address the problem by having government assume all the costs. But we'll, we'll move on, because uh, we don't have that much time. Um, yeah. who, who do you think the dark horse is on the Democratic side of that? Somebody we're not talking about. I mean, we have a long list of people here, you know, everybody from Buttigieg to... Uh, Gillibrand, uh, Booker, Castro. I mean, who, who, who are Yang? Who's in contention here that we're not talking about that could make a a, a real run at this?
3: Yeah, it's really hard to say, uh, and I think it's uh, um, political matter of practice for anyone to kind of predict the mood of this race, uh, okay. who our nominee would be. when I've been hearing the candidates on the um, for the first debate. Uh, okay. to to this point, it's hard to say. But what I can tell you is that you have in this business, and you know this because you I would. If you're a political expert on your side of the aisle uh, and this business in a primary peaking at the right time is so important and while there's some people who are under polling underperforming in the eyes of some uh, they have room to grow uh, and wait a long ways to go and so if they can continue to slowly raise their profile and slowly get get attention and sustain that uh, I think there could be multiple dark horses in this race uh, I think that I do think Kamala Harris has extensive potential when you look at uh, the intensity that black women bring to the Democratic uh, primary nominating process. Uh, they are the the more dominant force. Um, numbers do not lie about that. Uh, and I don't know, in my political lifetime, there hasn't been a credible... More visible um, candidate uh, as a female, a black female, to run for our party's nomination, and so I think she is one of uh, the could be dark horses. Obviously, we're talking a lot about Mayor Pete. We don't know the impact of some of us Governor Bullock. Who entered the race what yesterday or today, um, what he will bring to the table. Uh, so I think it's just premature to say. But I do think there are a lot of them who have potential to hang around for a while uh, if they can continue to raise their profile and peak at the right time, in the words of Mike Tyson.
1: Love it. Love it. Antoine, where can we keep up with your work?
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, where I actively... Uh, tweet, um, but I will tell you trolls will be blocked and threats <laughs> will be reported. And uh, my Twitter handle is a n t j u a n s e a. I'm also on Instagram uh, where I follow Harlan and I enjoy liking his pictures and giving him the South Carolina eyes because he hangs out with some interesting people. <laughs> and uh, my Instagram is A-N-T-J-U-A-N-S-E-A-W-R-I-G-H-T. right And I usually do not uh, take requests from people on Facebook that I don't know, so I won't even talk about Facebook. (laughs) Got
1: it. Thank you, Antoine. And you guys can also catch him on Fox News. That dude's on there, like, all the time. So anyway, Antoine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We'll be right back after this quick break with more. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton.
2: mission: Decoding the news and disseminating information
1: with actionable intelligence.
2: One small
0: family. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great, great American again.
2: This
1: is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open. We're going to take calls later in the show, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. As I mentioned in the last hour, the Trump economy is booming. That's in no small part because the unprecedented bold tax cuts spearheaded by President Donald Trump. Uh, To be specific, we had $5.5 trillion in tax cuts, 60% of which went to families. It's pretty incredible. But in 2020... Democrats are hell-bent on flipping the American economy into reverse. Joining me to evaluate the next few years is Paul Blair, the Director of Strategic Initiatives at Americans for Tax Reform. Paul, how are you doing?
4: Uh, Other than the grim prospect of a Democrat (laughs) uh, being in the White House after 2020, I'm doing
1: well. (laughs) <laughs> well, good, good. So, I mean, is it fair to say that every Democratic contender for the the nomination is is running on higher taxes? I mean, or, or is there somebody that's an outlier that's more of a moderate and reasonable?
4: No, that, I, I think that's a very fair assessment of where the I don't know how many dozens of candidates are running at this point, but certainly among the top contenders or those who register above one percent uh, in the national polls have all in some way suggested that they would either repeal the Republican tax cuts, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or they've come up with their own creative uh, tax plans of their own that raise taxes by hundreds of billions or multiple trillions of dollars to pay for their kind of inventive spending schemes on whatever the priority at the time is. So, yeah, I think it's a fair assessment to suggest that if a Democrat is elected president in 2020, uh, that among their top priorities will be raising taxes on nearly every American in the United States.
1: I mean that's incredible. I mean, if you reverse the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, you're getting rid of the doubling of the child tax credit, which has truly helped to lessen the financial burden of raising a family in this country. Uh, how can Democrats, who are ostensibly supposed to be the, the, the party of the little man, right? so they've, they've 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 held them up to be themselves up to be for a long time, how can they run on raising taxes on families?
4: Yeah, I mean, look. Let's let's break it down even further as to what a repeal, a full repeal of the tax cuts and jobs act would do. And the reason I say we've got to break it down based on a full repeal is that maybe eight nine months ago there would have been Democrats that said, "Well, we've got to raise the corporate rate or we've got to raise the top income tax rate," uh, because the tax cuts and jobs act certainly helped a couple of few hi- a few high earners. But in the last couple of weeks, specifically in the last few months. Um, We've had a number of Democrats come out and say that they either on day one uh, by some, I guess, magical mechanism, they would do a full repeal. And so here's what that would mean. A family of four earning median income of just over $70,000 a year would see a $2,000 tax increase. Single parent, and this goes to your point about the child tax credit, a single parent with one child making about a little over $40,000 a year would see a $1,300 tax increase. This isn't only a a few rich folks uh, who live, you know, in the Acela corridor or New York and, you know, the West Coast. Um, These are uh, families, small businesses, and low and middle income individuals, tens of millions of them who would face an immediate tax increase uh, if if, many of, if not any of the Democrats running for president were elected. What's interesting, I think, is if we look back to, I don't know, 2008. Uh, Joe Biden, for example, uh, at least in 2008, Democrats campaigned on promising to not raise your taxes. Now, of course, we knew uh, that they were lying and and it didn't take very long for us to find out that they were doing just that. Uh, But at least they pretended uh, that they weren't going to raise taxes. We are in a much different position uh, 12 years later with with essentially every single candidate campaigning on running low and middle income, raising low and middle income taxes on families, small businesses and individuals.
1: It's extraordinary to me because for the first time in a long time, um, well over a decade, Americans are s- just finally starting to get ahead. The economy is starting to show signs of booming We're not just the people in the SLA corridor, to your point, but people in the heartland. And this is yep. what people voted for. This is what the Trump revolution was about. This is why the ta- these tax cuts are in large part why we've exceeded 3% growth quarter to quarter. It's in large part why we've, you know, we're knocking on 5 million new jobs since President Trump was elected. Um, It's why we have record low African American unemployment, Hispanic unemployment, Asian unemployment, and female unemployment. And so I I really, truly reject the notion that Democrats can win running on this. And I'm sure you do too. And I'm wondering where they're going to have that epiphany. They're they're not self-aware. I don't think that they truly are plugged in to the American voter because at the end of the day, it's the economy that matters. And I think that people intrinsically know that if you add more regulations and you add more taxes, it's going to hurt the economy and their wallets.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, I think that their calculation is they can promise to spend a lot of money on a wide range of programs that may seem popular at a base level. So whether that's Medicare for all, Bernie Sanders plan, a Green New Deal, whatever that includes. Um, But it only takes one question uh, asked by any fair and reasonable person in the press or at a town hall, and that is how are you going to pay for it? Um, I will at least give Bernie Sanders some credit for admitting that he's going to raise taxes by over 14 trillion dollars over the next 10 years to pay for yeah. something like Medicare for all. But that's the point at which I think all of these Democrats plans becomes unpopular. It's when we begin to ask questions about, look, you can propose and promise to spend all of this money on all these programs and you can give free college and you know, free whatever uh, across the board. But how do you pay for it? And what we've seen from Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders to Elizabeth Warren, is that any tax that exists in some form, they probably want to raise. And so whether that's bringing back the individual mandate as part of Obamacare, whether that's new payroll taxes uh, for employers and employees, or whether it's full repeal, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I think when we get to the question of taxes and separate it from spending, uh, that's where I think they've made a very significant miscalculation about how popular their plans overall are going to be with middle america with but but isn't the problem constant in pennsylvania
1: isn't the problem that they they've sold this notion that we're going to raise taxes on only the rich not you and you will be the recipient of all of these free programs and i put free in quotations um and so it's sort of the otherization of how do i pay for this and so people are willing to write it off and not worry about it and they don't think about the, the, the economic implications to them of taxing job creators. Uh, I'm not, uh, there might be a disconnect there that, that, that might work for Democrats politically.
4: Absolutely. And look, this is where this is where kind of the Democrat position on taxes shifted in January when they took over the House with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and then Bernie Sanders on. Well, we're just going to raise taxes on the top one percent. We're going to increase the top marginal tax rate to 70 percent. And that's all we'll pay for a lot of stuff. What's funny about those sort of things is that if you discount the discouragement that takes place as a result of those high taxes, they're only going to generate something like $51 billion with a 70% tax bracket. Of course, now, if you take into consideration the suppression of investment and economic growth, the government actually loses tens of millions of dollars when you raise the top rate to 70%. And so, yeah, look, they can say that all of their uh, tax plans and proposals only hit the top 1%, but if you break it down and try to figure out how to actually pay for their programs, there is no discernible way to pay for anything like Medicare for All or the Green New Deal or any other you know, free college tuition for all uh, without sacking middle class taxpayers. And that's why they have to go deeper to do things like bring back the individual mandate or increase the employer-employee payroll tax. Uh, and those are things that don't hurt rich folks uh, but that do significantly and meaningfully uh, hurt middle income taxpayers.
1: My concern and this is why I think Medicare for all is actually inevitable um, politically here in in the United States is that um, you know ent- entitlements are inevitably popular and uh, it's never stopped Democrats from bad policy um, you know the, the the question how do we pay for this um, we continue to rack up debt we continue to spend irresponsibly we, we continue to promise things that we can't pay for um and we have a, a history decades long at this point of increasing the the social safety net um and i think that in absence of a solid plan on the republican side to address the health care um the exploding health care costs in this country um over the last de- couple of decades uh, that eventually americans are going to throw their hands up in the air and say you know what Somebody take care of this for us. Uh, we've seen it happen in other countries, and I think that it's it's going to happen here because I'm not hearing enough in the way of, of of solid policy on the Republican side of the aisle to present an alternative. Because at least, even though it might be a bankrupt idea, at least the Democrats are are are, are articulating what their solution to the healthcare costs are.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, you can, and this goes to something called the Overton window in terms of shifting yes. perception of radical ideas. Um, and that is that, you know, something like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All among mainstream Americans, conservatives, Republicans, moderates uh, may seem unattainable. But it shifts the Overton window to suggest that, well, maybe a part of it, maybe the government dealing with a little bit more in health care or a little bit more in education or a little bit more in, you know, whatever the field and program is makes sense. And so I, I do think there's a certain part of that which is correct, because although most Americans may view these proposals as radical, it does shift the window of what seems reasonable. And and whether that's more taxes or whether that's more spending, uh, it is a threat that unless aggressively encountered by Republicans, uh, whether that's in a new reformed healthcare proposal, uh, which Democrats and Republicans deeply care about. If you, you know, the 2018 election indicated that because we didn't effectively run on tax cuts and the economy. Uh, that unless we aggressively not only respond by batting down their bad ideas, but coming up with some better ones ourselves, I think you're right, and that is a risk that we run uh, the moment that Democrats have unified control of of Congress and the White House again, um, which God willing isn't anytime soon. But you know, you never know.
1: What um. We've addressed the Democratic side of the aisle. I mean, they want higher taxes. Many of them are actually openly running on it at this point. Okay, put them to the side. How strong is the Republican base right now um, in Congress? You know, on in terms of of, of, of cutting taxes. You know, not raising taxes. Um, you know, are we still on the same team? Are we on the same page on the Republican side of the aisle? And I ask that because the Republican Party has been in a shift. Uh, over the last three years. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you've seen a change in, uh, in, in, in how we view taxation on the right.
4: I do think so, largely because of our success in passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I mean, most Republicans, uh, maybe perhaps different than it was 10 years ago, um, given the chance, we will cut your taxes. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they're also going to cut spending. That's a totally different
1: right, <laughs> conversation. Right, right. Um,
4: and most Democrats, uh, given the opportunity, will raise your taxes. Um, this is true at the state level, and it's true at the federal level. Um, I, I do think that President Trump's aggressive pursuit of tax cuts, and I use aggressive in a positive way, um, uh, I think solidified the Republican base and solidified the Republican Party as the party that will cut your taxes, given the chance. Um, but we've done that now, and there's certainly some more things that we can do, like indexing the capital gains tax to inflation, uh, or, or making the middle class tax cuts permanent. There's more things that Republicans can do, uh, but, but I do think largely Republicans are on the same page. Now, every once in a while, I think we're going to have some outliers that flirt with stupidity, um, <laughs> on, on, on issues like a carbon tax. Uh, we're going to have an outlier right. here or there, uh, where, where folks contemplate some, some dumb ideas, um, but, you know, if we're in the range of ninety-five to ninety-nine percent Republicans rejecting these sort of ideas, I think we're in a much different position than we were in the early two thousands when we had Republicans that voted against tax cuts yep. under President Bush. Yep. Uh, and so, I, I do think we've seen a shift in positive direction.
1: Are there any names you'd be willing to drop about Republicans in support of a carbon tax? Are there? Anybody- oh yeah, absolutely. Look,
4: Francis Rooney in Florida um, mm-hmm. is uh, kind of out there. On- on his own in pushing what may be the most significant national energy tax that's ever been contemplated. I mean, we have a proposal before Congress that has something like 37 Democrats and one Republican, again, Francis Ray from Naples, Florida, uh, that that is pushing a multi-trillion dollar tax increase. So the government collects significantly more in gas taxes, utility bills, and energy costs, and then would um, send what I would call Uh, green energy welfare apology checks to most families um, to compensate for those higher costs. Now, of course, it wouldn't be 100 percent, but he's kind of out there alone on this. Um, You know, in the prior Congress, Carlos Corbello of Southern Florida was also one who took the lead on pushing this. But. Voters kind of saw through it and kicked him out of office. And so, again, we're going to have 95 to 99% of Republicans reject things like a national energy tax. And it's not a new idea. We went through this on cap and trade 10 years ago. And folks like Bob Inglis in South Carolina were primary and lost as a result of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're going to have to push back as aggressively uh, as possible against these sort of silly ideas um but again i do think we're in the range of 95 to 99 percent of folks rejecting that we just have to ensure that if democrats are in charge again we don't have a few of these uh, kind of moderate squishes join with democrats to impose those sort right. of disastrous ideas
1: well the takeaway from this is that we need somebody down there primarying uh Congressman Rooney in Naples, Florida, if, uh, if we don't already have some I don't
4: there. think that would be a bad idea. I think
1: there
4: are, <laughs> few ideas. I think there are a few policies he's wrong on. Good, um, good. And and, well, and I think that uh, voters, uh, given the chance, might select someone else.
1: Well, Paul Blair, the Director of Strategic Initiatives at Americans for Tax Reform, where can we learn more about your work?
4: You can check out our website at atr.org or uh, follow us on Twitter at Tax
1: Reformer. Thank you so much, Paul. We'll be right back after this quick break with more. The phone lines are open. We'll be taking calls later in the show. Give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open. We will get to those calls. So give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. We obviously covered a lot of ground, But we have some great guests uh, up ahead as well. Dr. Marion Mass is uh, coming up in the next block. She's great. She's going to help break down the opioid crisis. Uh, She's seen this firsthand. Uh, We're going to address how we fix it and what it means for us politically in 2020. This is an issue that I wish I knew more about. It is something that, particularly in the heartland of America, is affecting many people. And unfortunately, in a media landscape dominated by the East and West Coast, I don't think we hear enough about it. Uh, But voters do care about it. So we're going to talk to an expert on that. We also have a Republican consultant and 2016 Trump uh, campaign alum who is in Ohio right now with his ear to the ground on how the president is performing and what we have to look forward to in 2020, because I believe that Ohio is a bellwether for how the rest of the Rust Belt states, for lack of a better term, will go. We also have Probably one of the preeminent um, experts on energy that I we could get for it for today's show uh, and he's going to break down what energy means for the 2020 race and what the Trump administration has done thus far to deliver enormous results to pay enormous dividends uh, for the uh, America's national security and economic security. I also want to go back to something that I mentioned previously, but we didn't have a whole lot of time to address it. The president, and the Trump administration is doing something great. They've opened up an online forum where Americans can share instances in which they've been censored by social media platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, this is really important, guys. I mean, because we've been, we've been talking a lot about this problem, but we haven't heard very many solutions to it. Finally, the Trump administration is going to start compiling uh, r- examples of uh, manipulation by the major social media companies, major tech firms, and we're going to start coming up with solutions to the problems. I love that the president is not sitting back and letting people complain about it. He's taken this issue by the horns, and we're going to fix it. So if you go over to the White House website, whitehouse.gov, you can now finally file a complaint about your freedom of speech being violated by social media platforms. Um, You can include screenshots and everything else. This is a really important issue, guys, because if we lose the fight on social media... We're going to lose the fight overall. Once again, this is the Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back after this break. Thanks so much for tuning in.
2: He's back with you
1: now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck while he's on assignment in China. The phone lines are open and we're going to be taking calls later in the show. So give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. According to the NIH National Institute on Drug Abuse, drug overdoses killed over 70,000 people in 2017 alone and countless more are impacted every year. This is an epidemic in our own country and we hardly hear a whisper of it on cable news. Joining me to away with some of the mystery and to address this tremendously consequential issue is Dr. Marion Mass, the co-founder of Practicing Physicians of America and a practicing physician in the Philadelphia area. Dr. Mass, how are you doing?
5: I am great, Harlan. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, thank you for joining me. So first, can you just break down for us um, how critical this issue has gotten? I mean, I'm sure you see it in the field all the time.
5: Oh, tremendously critical, and as a pediatrician, I, I see the, the youngest victims, you know, the, the babies that have been exposed in the womb, and children that are now in foster care or struggling to go back and forth between foster care, and, um, you know, children that are uh, living in homes that have the epidemic within the homes.
1: Got Heartbreaking. it. It's, it's It's terrible. Um so, it's no secret that Americans are paying more and getting less for health care. Um, how does that tie back to the opioid crisis, and what should our approach be? Wow.
5: Um, so, I, I may have to take a little bit of a circuitous route to get us there, if that's okay, but you hit the nail on the head, and this is actually my specialty, if it were, because I've made a point of dissecting the healthcare care system. And why? Because as a practicing physician, I and many, many. Thousands of physicians across the nation are facing our patients every day, and we see their frustration. It's palpable. Um, So they are paying more and getting less. What we really need to do is to pull back the curtain and dissect why. And when you do that, it's really interesting, um, because two of the main cost drivers are the costs of hospitalization and the cost of uh, drugs and supplies. Um, And uh, it seems as though it's unrelated, but it really truly is related Um, America knows well enough that mm, the insurance companies are a bit of a problem and they know that mm, pharmaceutical companies are making money. But what they don't realize, many of them, is there's pharmaceutical and hospital supply middlemen that are draining $200 billion out of the healthcare system every year. And as middlemen, they're not manufacturing drugs, they're not doing any research, and they're not even distributing any medications. And it's outrageous that they're making so much money. And part of the reason is why is our government in the 1980s and again in the early 2000s granted to these two giant industries, one is called PBMs or Pharmacy Benefit Managers and the other is called GPOs or Group Purchasing Organizations. They granted the both of them the legal right to accept a kickback functionally. They call them rebates and you've heard them all over the news for the PBMs. Now, these pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs who are allowed to accept money from pharmaceutical companies are making the very formularies that decide what medications are paid for by uh, your insurance company and at what level. Astounding, right? They're receiving kickbacks or so-called rebates. In the hospital side... Uh, the group purchasing organizations, and they're much less known. You're not hearing about them. And they control 90% of the hospital supply for large companies, also allowed to receive kickbacks, or they call them rebates. And what this has done over time is it's created a pay-to-play environment, and in both the outpatient pharmaceutical world and the inpatient pharmaceutical and supply world, we're having not only extraordinary costs, but because it's pay-to-play, over time, the manufacturers have started to uh, purchase uh, either NEAR or sole source rights to the formularies or to the hospital supplies. Got it. So, yes, and so what we have seen is a uh, shortage of several interesting medications. Would you like to hear more?
1: Well, i, I got to ask you, I mean, what are some of the low-hanging fruit that we could tackle first to you know, drive down costs? Uh, because I think that this is going to be a major political issue going into 2020. You look at how um, healthcare polls with Democrats, it's a number one issue. You look how it's increasingly polling with independents, it's a number one issue. You look how it's polling with the Republicans, not quite the number one issue. Immigration and taxes are still up there, but it will increasingly become it because healthcare costs are, are, are astronomical. And so my thesis has been for a while, and I, I, we actually were talking about this earlier in the show, is that unfortunately I think Medicare for all and socialized medicine is inevitable because in the absence of... Uh, real meaningful solutions to the cost, the exploding cost of healthcare. Um, uh, a lot of voters are going to stand up and just demand any sort of solution. And Republicans, unfortunately, haven't articulated what that solution is. For a while, it was to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, you know, we haven't done that. That's not going to happen. Um, uh, and and Democrats' solution might be uh, bankrupt, uh, both literally and figuratively. But um, at least they're providing a solution to the problem. So. In absence of that, because I don't think that really anybody uh, reasonable wants Medicare for all, um, but uh, in absence of that, what is the solution to drive down the cost of health care and and, and sort this?
5: Well, you you mentioned low-hanging fruit, so I'll tackle that first. How about get rid of the $200 billion industry of legalized kickbacks? You know, and I'm not suggesting that we get rid of these middlemen industries. I'm just simply suggesting that they play by the rules same rules as everyone else, um, you know. So that will have a lot of down, um, downward, decreasing cost effects as well, because these kickbacks are stifling manufacturing since only one company is making a various drug or a supply, and it's causing shortages. Mm-hmm. And the shortages themselves are causing problems in hospitals that are causing extended stays. Um, more complicated care needed because us, we as physicians and our friends, the nurses, are jerry-rigging the way around these shortages. So, getting rid of legalized kickbacks is one way that's really important to um, yeah. drive down costs.
1: And, Can I ask you a quick and, question about those and, kickbacks? I mean, are, do they drive any of the, the decisions that physicians and insurance companies make about what to prescribe?
5: Oh, naturally. Yeah. Because we're only going to be able to prescribe something that the patient's insurance cover, right. covers, you know, so that's what we, you know, sure. check the box or put on the prescription. Or in the hospital setting, you know, um, I will give you three large classes of medications that are in shortages because of the legalized kickbacks. And it's, it's what we have available in the hospitals. So the one area is maternal and fetal medicine. Mm. So women that go into premature labor, um, they come in with maybe high blood pressure, and they need to uh, they get uh, a bolus of, well, bolus is just a, us giving them ID fluids of saline, salt water, sterilized salt water. We're short on saline, hmm. salt water, because there's only one major company making it. So then this particular woman who comes in in labor early, um, the next drug that you would give her or medication is magnesium, a very simple salt. It's in shortage. And by the way, it's used to protect that woman from having seizures, which is very dangerous for the baby. So your next step would be to put this woman uh, into labor and we use Pitocin to do that, Oxytocin. It's, it's been around for decades. All of these medications and solutions have. It's in shortage. So now we have to take this woman and uh, send her to the operating room and uh, deliver by C-section, preferably by spinal. That's the best way to do it, the most safe way for the mother and the baby. But we can't do it because we're lacking the anesthetic. It's in shortage that's the most safe one to use. And even before she delivers, we really should be giving her two shots of steroids to mature her baby's lungs, which provides the most protection and is the number one driver of the baby having medical problems later. Well, guess what? That's
1: steroids in shortage, too. Extraordinary.
5: Travesty.
1: I, 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 nobody know. I mean, people outside of your profession, I, I think, have no idea that this is as pervasive a problem as it, as it is. Um, Terrible. But, and I, I wanted to get back. So it, it's clear at this point that we have extraordinary uh, shortages that are uh, unnecessary. It's clear that we have exploding costs of health care that can and should be addressed. It seems like there's some low-hanging fruit that we could tackle, at least in uh, the interim, um, to drive down these costs. Um, and to to address these drug shortages, but can we get to the opioid crisis um, because i 'm trying to understand how we got to this point um, yeah 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 so so what I are the origins of of, of of yeah What's, what are the origins of of, of the abuse of of uh, uh, drugs and, and opioids in, in this setting
5: right well, and you, when you say in the setting how appropriate because you know we had opium dens in. You know, the 1800s in China, they're very well described. I mean, people were abusing opioids at the beginning part of this century in, in America. Um, why now? I think we're in the middle of a perfect storm. You know, you have the OxyContin uh, kind of pushed on us by the, the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, and um, they certainly have made quite a good bit of money off of it. Isn't there a wing in the Metropolitan Museum up there named after them? Mm-hmm. Um, but so they're busy pushing at a time when A lot of our legacy medical organizations, the Institute of Pain Medicine, the American Medical Association, or the AMA, um, were were all telling us in the 1990s that we were under-prescribing narcotics. They're safe. They're fine. You're under-prescribing. We had to treat patients' pain. And this was all growing up at a time when we had pain scores um, instilled in hospitals and a time when we were starting to rely on patient satisfaction scores and remarkably, Medicare money to hospitals was in part based on satisfaction scores, so if patients were happy and pain free they gave higher scores, we started giving more opioids. But I think the two other things that and that, that you know push this storm are three other things i 'll give three i 'm going to fault my own profession here. We are creatures of habit, so when we were taught you 're not treating pain. You know, staunchly enough, you know, you should be writing prescription, make sure the patient has plenty of pain meds. We got in the habit of writing prescriptions, you know, give 30, you know, OxyContin tablets. And, you you know, you were taught this by residents. You write the number 30, you write the number 30. We have to break those habits. And I think that we're starting to have good faith efforts to do that, you know, minus the revolting pill mill doctors that give our profession a bad name. I find that reprehensible. Um, and the other, The other two areas that I would say are, You know, we had a terrible crisis economically in our country and people had lost jobs. They have, uh, at a time when they're paying more for health care, it's demoralizing. And I think people turned to cover up their pain at a time when pain medications were more available because we're writing more, because people are doing more prescriptions, because we had been trained to do so. Uh, And then you see a, a setting... It's interesting, I've seen, um, I guess I would call parenting has changed over the last 20 to 30 years. And I don't say this to be judgmental to parents, but I often will tell them when they come in and they're um, upset about their child's fever, the child's pain, or the problem that the child is going through. Of course, I address those issues, but I always tell them, you know, your number one job as a parent is to learn to teach your child how to deal with adversity And pain is a sort of adversity. So it's not our job as doctors to try to rid your body of pain or your child's body of pain, but to make you comfortable, help you get through it, and teach you how to cope with the pain that maybe we don't want to completely take away because we do not want to snow you so much and give you so much pain medication that we're going to create a downstream problem.
1: Fascinating. Well, this is obviously a a tremendous problem that we need to to take head on, and I think a combination of public policy and, uh, you know, uh, some collaborative effort among physicians uh, could finally make a dent in this. But let's, let's hope that that happens. Dr. Marion Mass, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Mass is a Philadelphia area uh, pediatrician and the co-founder of Practicing Physicians of America and a member of the Pennsylvania Medical Society. And she serves as, uh, as a leadership on a leadership position for the Physicians Against Drug Shortages. Thank you so much, Dr. Mass.
5: It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break with more. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open. We're going to be taking those calls, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. So the Democrats have been seeking these nanny state policies, that voters resoundingly adre- uh, rejected in 2016. And they still haven't figured that in large part, it's the repudiation of those nanny state policies that President Barack Obama ran on, that he governed on, that led to the rise of Donald Trump. A good example of this is Senator Elizabeth Warren. She, you know, is running for president of the United States. She's a radical progressive lawmaker, She recently wrote an opinion piece for none other than CNN. She made the case that nobody in this country, quote, succeeds on their own because everybody relies on the government in some way. But one could still easily argue that Americans succeed despite clumsy government efforts. I mean, we saw this with uh, Obamacare. There's no better example of this. The purpose of Obamacare was to drive down costs and to make health care available to more people. Okay, didn't work out. Healthcare costs are through the roof. Through the roof. And the only reason that more people were insured because of Obamacare is primarily because people were forced to or they would have to pay a a, a fine. So that's a perfect example of an anti-state policy actually leading to the adverse effects that um, we were promised would never happen. These ubiquitous federal programs do not even justify their existence, much less their expansion. So, as Warren wishes to do, um, you know, she, she's struggling to articulate the reason that her policies have any sort of mainstream appeal. So, on most of her points, she's quite simply wrong. Americans do not need government to come to their rescue with a fifteen dollars minimum wage. Companies are already doing that on their own, um, as the economy under President Donald Trump has given them the chance to start growing again. You know, I don't know if you remember, but after the tax cuts, we saw a wave of corporate, com- big corporate Fortune one hundred companies. Uh, all the way down to small businesses saying, we're going to raise wages because government's getting out of the way, we're reducing regulations, we're reducing taxes, we can afford to pay our workers more, period. And labor unions are increasingly unnecessary in this economy with wages rising just as fast as non-union workers um, ha- have risen wages for their employers. So unions aren't justifying their existence either. And in the manufacturing sector, sector non-union workers have seen their wage increase by almost twice as much over the past 12 months. So, Democrats, they, they predicated their entire agenda on division. They predicated their entire agenda on the nanny state. Voters rejected it in 2016. And based on the data that I'm seeing right here and what I've just reported to you, I don't see that changing. We have a lot more to cover. We've got a really interesting segment coming up about the president's prospects in the Rust Belt states, which are essential to us maintaining the White House, um, in 2020, and so I'm looking forward to that. Make sure you call in. we got the phone lines open, 844-900-2825. Stay tuned to The Buck Sexton Show.
0: Buck Sexton.
2: Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information
0: with actionable intelligence.
2: One. All. Make no mistake. American. are a great American again. This is The Buck Sexton
1: Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now... Welcome back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. I promise we're going to take those calls soon. Um, I'm going to be joined here in a moment by Alan Betts. He's a really good friend of mine and a political consultant and a Trump 2016 alum who ran one of the most successful districts for the president in Ohio last time around. The reason I wanted him to join us today is because uh, Ohio is a bellwether for the rest of of uh, the Rust Belt states, uh, which President Trump needs to win. So, Alan, thank you for joining me today.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Based on your experience, because I know you're currently running campaigns there in, o- in Ohio right now, uh, what's the mood on the ground with with voters and activists and volunteers?
6: Yeah, sure. Um, so, as you know, in 2016, the president carried the state um, almost by 10 percentage points, and there was a lot of excitement. Uh, especially in the uh, grassroots, uh, door-to-door, going to events, rallies, things like that. And I can see the same environment happening now. I, I mean, there's people that have been reaching out already. Um, that, they're telling me that they are ready for 2020. They're ready to hit the pavement to do whatever is necessary to get the president elected again.
1: What, um, what do you think the takeaway was from the 2018 general election uh, or midterm election? Um, where I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, almost every statewide candidate um, on the Republican side won the election.
6: Yeah, it was uh, pretty big for Ohio. The only um, person that, that kind of threw that off was Sherrod Brown uh, getting reelected. But the Republicans swept all the statewide um, candidate races, and it was, a, if you will, a red wave in Ohio. And yeah, I know a lot of people. A lot of people now are are shifting their focus and not calling Ohio a swing state. I, I've seen it a couple in a couple areas where they're calling Ohio pretty much solid red. Yeah, uh, right now or at least leaning red.
1: Right. Why do you think uh, the president is so popular in Ohio? In a in a Rust Belt state like Ohio, um, that you know Democrats used to perform very well in, particularly in presidential years.
6: Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the economy. I mean, people are seeing the benefits of the uh, tax cuts. Um, the industry that, that left Ohio, a lot of it's coming back, and we saw that in the the hinge counties in the northeast portion of the state that have went Democrat for years, and they border Pennsylvania, and they flipped for Trump, and it bled into Pennsylvania actually, and it, it kind of the the blue collar, hardworking. Construction workers, factory workers, things like that—they they really resonate with Trump, and they feel that that he has their best interest in mind as president.
1: And, and are they seeing like a positive developments in the country? Because you know, earlier in the show, I mean, I was rattling off all the economic achievements of the of the the Trump administration. I mean, record low unemployment across the board, regardless of you know gender, ethnicity etc. I mean it seems like everybody's benefiting from the Trump economy um, so are, are, are people, geographically are people feeling that in Ohio? Is there a palpable difference in the economy and in a sense of optimism there?
6: Yeah, Ohio was uh, never necessarily one of the lower states on, on that spectrum but they are seeing uh, advances in those areas and like I said especially in those areas um, in the northeastern part of the state where it's a lot of factories and things where yeah. uh, I know the big one where they laid off all the workers out by Youngstown, but um, in general, people are seeing more money in their paychecks from the tax cuts. They're seeing these jobs coming back to, to the, like you said, the Rust Belt areas of the state. Right.
1: Well, and so uh, let, let's let's kind of take this back to why this matters, because I, I think you're right that Ohio is solidly red. Um, I, the president's going to carry it. I mean, we, we can't take it for granted. can't take any state for granted that we won last time. Um, but I think the reason that this matters is because uh, there's a lot of commonality between um, voters that we need in uh, Ohio and the voters that we need to turn out in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, and Wisconsin. And so uh, what I'm going to be interested to see is, you know, if those factory workers that feel like they have benefited from the Trump economy in Ohio, um, you know, and they, they turn out to vote, you know, will we be able to turn out those those same voters in, in those other states? And uh, the the other thing that I'm interested in is, do you think that there's the opportunity for the Trump campaign to mobilize more resources in in, in those states uh, as compared to, to 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 Ohio? Because you know, we think that it's it, it's solidly in our column.
6: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is that uh, even bigger than getting the 18 electoral votes from Ohio and uh, carrying the state? And we all know the history. If you carry Ohio, you win the, president's, the presidency. Um, but on top of that, like you said, I think Ohio, besides Florida, it was the second uh, most trafficked uh, state during the 2016 election. So there was a lot of events. There was a lot of rallies, stuff like that. And if just think if you reallocate those resources from Ohio into these areas, like you're talking, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and I even kind of throw in Virginia into that because if you recall, Virginia wasn't called very early in the night of 2016 and I think Tim Kane had a lot to do with that and being on the ballot and I think that that could be uh, another state that the campaign should look at but reallocating these resources from Ohio and like you said, not taking it for granted but kind of being smart statistically and placing it in these areas in uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania doing more stuff out there, more rallies and I think I think that could very well benefit the campaign.
1: If you had to look at the, the map nationally, I mean, if we're looking to reallocate resources, um, and, and I know you study the polls a lot, um, you mentioned Virginia as a state that, you know, we lost last time, but we might be able to carry this time. I mean, what, where do you think the the most um, prime virgin territory, is, Where where is it for our campaign if we we're looking to go on the offensive and not just play defense on the map that we carried last time?
6: Yeah, I think Virginia is uh, probably number one. Um, I think, like I said, Tim Kaine was on the ballot. I think that helped a lot. It was yeah. very, very close. People thought it was going to be called at the beginning of the night. They waited and waited and waited. It, it was it was a nail-biter, yeah. and um, uh, Hillary Clinton was able to squeak it out. But I think that's where I would – I think Virginia is the, the number one. And I also think we did carry North Carolina, but I think we need to um, kind of – act like North Carolina was lost i think you yeah. need to uh
1: well, out- the demographics have changed north there so rapidly um that it that it is it does cause some concern i mean georgia's the, the same way i mean uh you're seeing massive influx of of uh of, of migrants within the country uh but then also a lot of illegal immigration that are now converting into to, to voters in in places like georgia so it is a concerning trend that i think i think you're right we got to take seriously and probably treat a couple of those states north carolina uh michigan uh pennsylvania um uh, georgia but th- those four states are, are are good examples of states that yes we carried but um they're by no means um chew-ins um and so what what keeps you awake at night politically uh when we look to 2020 i mean is it the economy i mean is it you know so, what do you think the x factor could be that um catapults one of these democrats into to contention because right now i mean it looks like the president's unstoppable
6: Right. And I I think I think that's exactly what we need to be careful of. I think uh, I don't think we need to get too cozy and like we were uh, being a little hesitant about uh, taking Ohio for granted. I I don't want to take anything for granted uh, this next election. I don't I feel like uh, there's some people that, like you said, think the president's invincible and, you know, you don't have to do anything. I still think we need to hit the ground running like 2016, get involved locally, get involved with the state. Uh, knock doors, do whatever you have to do to get the word out uh, and not take anything for granted because we're talking about states like Virginia going on the offense. Well, we need to protect states that we've already won, that we need to reassure.
1: So I, I want your help kind of drilling down here because you spent, you have some really valuable experience. I mean, you have worked with a lot of activists at the local level that support the president and you understand what motivates them How to motivate those people. Um, You understand why they support the president and why they view him as sort of uh, a transformational candidate. Um, How do we keep them energized? Um, You know, what are they saying to you on the ground, you know, literally in in specific terms, like what are you hearing from people?
6: Well, in Ohio, it's a little uh, different because, like in 2018, I, I already said that the Republicans swept it very. Very good job, Red Wave in Ohio. And Trump wasn't on the ballot, but a lot of these candidates linked themselves with Trump. And I think voters started to realize that a vote for a Republican is a vote for Trump. And I think that the president has done a very good job of associating himself with these uh, down ballot Republicans, and we need to get them elected in office. And in Ohio, people were not as energized in 2018 as 2016, but they still hit the voting boost. And that's what matters. And I believe that the economy, I've, I've always been a um, believer that the economy is what drives people. I think if you have more money in your pocket, that's how you vote. If you have more money in your pocket since the last election, you're going to go with the same thing. People generally don't like change. Um, so I, I think that just looking at the, the tax cuts, the business coming back, uh, the trade deals that the president has successfully negotiated, and he's working on China right now. Uh, I think those are key things that people, especially in, in that area of the country, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, like we were talking, um, they they want those jobs coming back. They see the progress that's being made, and they, they believe that President Trump is getting the job done.
1: So um let's take a look at the democratic field. I mean there there are a lot of Democrats here, but there there's someone there's some that are relevant to Ohio. And I, I'm I'm curious to get your take on how they might impact um the president's performance there in uh, 2020. I mean, you could have somebody like Sherrod Brown as a running mate, right? Uh, you could have uh, Tim Ryan. Um, these are both uh, Ohio born and bred um, Democrats that appealed to more moderate uh, voters, independents, and even some uh, moderate Republicans. Um, now, I've heard a lot of people speculate that, you know, that they, they could have some sort of impact on the the vote in Ohio, um, if they were on the ballot in um, 2020, do you think that there's any truth there? I mean, y- you mentioned that Sherrod had been the only Democrat to win a statewide office in 2018. Um, it, it, are are those concerns overplayed, or or or, or what, what are you hearing?
6: I, I think they're a little overplayed for Ohio, at least. Um, so like somebody like Tim Ryan, I think would do a lot better if if his name recognition was a little better throughout the state. He's very well known in the Northeast and people know who he is and know a little bit about him but he's not really uh uh he doesn't come out he's not on tv a lot he doesn't uh come out and introduce crazy bills or anything so people aren't really they don't recognize tim Ryan. now sherrod brown on the other hand has had a approval rating of 50% or higher for the last whatever years and he's always been um you know a shoe in as a as a uh getting reelected and things like that but like you said, he was the only one that, that the only Democrat that um, won in 2018. And what I would say about that is he didn't win by that much. I mean, he didn't win yeah. as much as people were speculating. People thought he was, you know, it was going to be a landslide victory. I think he. Um, I'm not sure the exact. Uh, he vote squeaked palette, it. I mean, it was it was, was like four
1: points. Five, yeah.
6: Yeah, five, five percentage points or something. Um, so it wasn't. It wasn't. I think it shocked a lot of people, and I think it really tells the tale of how 2020 is going to go. Even if you do have one of these people on the ballot, the people are still shifting because if this was, you know, 2014, 2012, something like that, Sherrod Brown would have won by, you know, 10, 15 percentage.
1: Yeah, and and, 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 there, and there's no question. I mean, you can go back and you actually look at it, he, he, he was. Um, so things have, without question, changed in, in, uh, in Ohio. And, in fact, I, I mean, I've talked to some people that say that Ohio is more conservative now than even a state like like texas um and when you look at the makeup of the state legislature there i mean there's a good argument to be made for that so um it's pretty extraordinary but anyway alan where can people find you uh you have a twitter account that the people can go follow you on
6: yeah uh alan d beth it's alan with two l's
1: all right thanks alan uh we will be right thanks. back after this uh stay tuned to the buck sexton show Welcome back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. We're in the last hour here. I'm Harlan Hill filling in for Buck while he's on assignment in China. So the new economic numbers are out, and the verdict is clear. And we've touched on this quite a bit tonight. The U.S. economy is on fire. And the Democrats' claims of economic Armageddon, which you heard endlessly in 2016, and the promises of a coming recession, um, they've never materialized. Democrats are desperate. They're desperately attempting to explain away economic reality by falsely claiming that the Trump economy is benefiting only the rich. And when they can't do that by falsely claiming that the Trump economy is because of Barack Obama, (laughs) who's widely realized to be disastrous, whose economy was widely viewed to be disastrous. As with their dire forecasts of economic doom, their claims are easily disproven. Trump boom is, in fact, benefiting Americans in every demographic group. We beat that to death tonight. We've proven that. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, where you live, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're African American or white, whether you're Asian or Latino, you have benefited from this Trump economy. That's not my opinion. That's data. Economists polled by the Wall Street Journal had predicted that the U.S. economy would generate just 190,000 new jobs last month and a 3.8% unemployment rate. Those would be very strong results and cause for optimism. But as has become the norm in the Trump economy, the April numbers job report crushed these expectations. Many economists just simply didn't think it was possible. From the moment that he took office, President Trump has implemented a straightforward and effective economic agenda based on four core strategies, tax cuts, deregulation, Fair trade and domestic energy production. As a result, the economy has added 263,000 jobs in April alone, pushing the unemployment rate down to a 50 year low of 3.6%. The unemployment rate for adult women is at just 3.1%. That's it, it's crazy. More women are employed now on average, or as a percentage of the workforce, than men. This is extraordinary. And the thing that i really want to make sure that every one of you here because the democrats don't want to admit it and one of our guests earlier today i think was surprised to learn this the average hourly earnings rose 3.2 percent for the year for the ninth consecutive month with a three percent or better year-over-year increase so people i'm gonna break that down people are making more that's a fact more people are employed we have fewer people on unemployment benefits the people that are employed are making more money. Satisfaction amongst consumers is at an all-time high. Um, unemployment is at a 50%, uh, 50-year low. This is extraordinary. This is an impressive labor market. And once again, this isn't my opinion. These are facts. You, you may not like it if you're a Democrat. You may not like it if you're a Democrat running for office. You may not like it if you're a member of the lying media. But you can't run away from these facts. And you can't tell people that feel better today than they did four years ago that they're wrong because they see it in their bank accounts. They feel it in their wallets. Those children are better off for it. It's extraordinary. Now, we still have a lot of work to do, and that's why we have to reelect President Donald J. Trump. In the next segment, I have a great energy expert joining me, and we're going to break down uh, everything that the president has done to uh, ensure that we have energy independence for both national security and economic reasons, and to explain how that impacts and benefits every single American. I'm Harlan Hill, in for Buck Saxton. This is The Buck Saxton Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Buck Saxton Show. I'm Harlan Hill, filling in for Buck. The phone lines are open, so give us a call at 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. As I mentioned in the last hour, Under President Donald J. Trump's leadership, we're finally achieving energy independence that's critical to our national and economic security. U.S. oil production is at its highest level in American history. Uh, The United States is now the largest crude oil producer in the world. uh, And the U.S. has become a net-neutral gas exporter for the first time in six decades. Joining me to break all of this down, because it's a complex issue, is the energy king of Washington and one of my good friends, Anthony Pugliese a former senior member of the Trump administration and chief of staff at FERC. Anthony, uh, how are you doing?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me on.
1: (laughs) So, first of all, help me break all this down. So, first, how critical is the president's portfolio of accomplishments, and how does it affect every American?
0: So, it's a great question. Energy right now really is the linchpin in a lot of the president's foreign and and domestic uh, economic agenda. So right now we have uh, Secretary Perry and Secretary Pompeo, uh, and as they are traveling around the world, um, really the number one issue that they are talking about right now is energy and how we can do a better job of stabilizing uh, various regions of the country, how we can promote U.S. energy jobs, um, and also how we can do a better job of balancing uh, adversarial countries like Russia and China and others uh, from dom- uh, dominating various regions of the world.
1: Well, and I thought that, it, based on what Obama told us, these were jobs of the past. <laughs> and, and if you look at what the president's done in two short years, um, the industry's booming. So what's the discrepancy here? Like, what, what, the what's the difference between the Democratic uh, Party's agenda, because I, I think this is relevant because we're going into 2020, and the Republicans? How vast is the discrepancy between the two, the two parties on, on energy?
0: it's like night and day um, right now, you know, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, coming from Pennsylvania, uh, we have it, just such a boom from an economic perspective and a lot of it. It has to do with energy, um, but it all has to do with really with president Trump really unleashing the United States economy. And that's what this is all about is trying to find ways to utilize the resources that we have uh, do that in an environmentally, uh, you know, uh, responsible manner. But at the end of the day, um, you know, our job is not to work against business and try to find more ways to put more obstacles up. Uh, President Trump is trying to find ways to make things more efficient. Um, and a lot of that has to do uh, with energy uh, deregulation, um, with looking at various uh, policies, whether it be at, you know, places like the Department of Transportation uh, the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, all these various places that have just hundreds and thousands of regulations and trying to identify how they are hindering economic growth. And he's doing a phenomenal job at it.
1: Got it. Well, you know, energy is is one of these, these complex issues that I think, um, you know, we often as voters probably want to leave up to other people to understand because we're talking about geopolitics, we're talking about national security, economics, you know, we're talking about currency. I mean, it's a very, very complex issue um, in a global marketplace. But what keeps you up at night when you think about this industry?
0: The thing that keeps me up most is the national security aspect of things. There are a number of countries right now that are trying to take advantage and to blackmail a lot of other countries using energy. You look at a country like Russia, the really the the from an economic perspective, what keep it, what's keeping them going right now is uh, their energy, their, their exporting energy. Um, and the idea of the United States coming in uh, more and more around the world due to a lot of our LNG export terminals and the LNG applications that we're working on at places like FERC, uh, Department of Energy and others this is a very serious uh issue that folks like russia and others are are less than pleased about and so um when we are putting in jeopardy um really the last major economic uh driver for their economy you know they're going to retaliate and so whether that be um you know looking at you know cybersecurity issues trying to um uh, infiltrate various SCADA systems, whether it be trying to manipulate, uh, you know, how we transport energy back and forth. Uh, these are all really serious issues um, that our intelligence community is dealing with every single day. Um, and as we continue to play a larger role in the geopolitical world, uh, especially in regards to energy, uh, those threats are only increasing. And, and it's something that really uh, is keeping myself and others uh, in, in similar positions like mine uh, up, on, up at night.
1: So, um, I, you know, we kind of tackled this at a high level, but I'm looking to drill down, I guess, now. And one of the first stats that I threw out is that U.S. oil production is at its highest level in American history. Um, why is that? I mean, have we gotten regulation out of the way? I mean, what specifically are we doing to to open up um, the American reserves?
0: Sure, that's exactly right. We are, uh, one of the very first things that President Trump, uh, did when he became when he came into office was he put forward an executive order, uh, mandating that for every one regulation that we implement, we remove two. Um, and there are, this has been so impactful in every aspect of the economy, uh, but really, it's it's hard to imagine a, a a more profound example of its impact than in energy. Um, we have so many various agencies that play a role in this. Um, in order, for example, to just get one pipeline in uh, to from let's say Pennsylvania to the New England states or whatever else that might be, uh, you're going to have to go through just on the federal level. There's probably going to be Department of Energy, Department of Interior. Uh, the forestry, um, you're going to have the Bureau of Land Management, you're going know, to FERC, um, and then you're going to have the Pipeline Houses and Materials Safety Administration at Department of Transportation, and a number of others. Um, and that's just on the federal side. And so then when you start looking at all these various aspects, um, there's a lot of onerous regulations that have just been put in there by the last administration and others who are trying to slow down the industry. Uh, and, and President Trump has reversed those tactics and is allowing uh, us to succeed uh, both domestically and uh, internationally.
1: So when we look to 2020, what do you think the major issues in energy are going to be? I mean, you, you touched on the national security part, you know, where um, foreign actors like the Russians and the Chinese are trying to manipulate, um, you know, uh, for, foreign policy and, um, you know, abuse their power in, in, in such a way. But beyond that, um, what issues do you think are going to be relevant in the twenty twenty uh, Democratic primary and then in the general election? Because I, I know that the Democrats are going to be harping on renewable energy and all of that, and that you know that, that's fine. You know, even nuclear. Um, but you know, what, where is the topic uh, of conversation going to be driven in twenty twenty by the Democrats and then in, in the general election?
0: So right, you have right now you have a lot of individuals talking about the Green New Deal, um, and clearly that's where. Uh, the Democrats right now, at least especially in regards to energy are are focusing on, um, realistically, I think anybody that spent any sizable time in this industry would tell you that the Green New Deal is impractical and is not realistic right now. I think, uh, you know, ensuring that we are doing things in an environmentally sound manner and moving towards you know, carbon neutral are things that we should strive to do. and President Trump has been very successful in doing so. You look at um, you know emissions, they are they were going down right now while production is going up. So you can have it both ways uh, if you do it in an environmentally sound but economically sound perspective. the what you're seeing from the Republican side right now is is growth. Uh, again, I was talking about Pennsylvania, for example, you know a lot of these industries, whether it be, energy or transportation or wherever else it might be, um, are going to need some of these old manufacturing jobs. Uh, we're going to need additional steel production, all these types of things. Uh, and that's what President Trump realizes. You look at, in 2016, one of my favorite examples is President Trump was outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and was saying, we're going to bring his steel jobs back to Pennsylvania. And everybody mocked him. They laughed at him, said, these jobs are, ne- are gone. They're never coming back. But right now, in that nearly that exact same area, we have a steel plant moving from China back into the United States, specifically in that exact same area around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. These are jobs that are back; they're family-sustaining jobs, and it, that's what's going to make sure that Trump, President Trump, uh, gets reelected in 2020.
1: Gotcha. So, if you had to put money on it at this point in time, and I know you're a little biased because you run the Trump administration, you're a longtime supporter of the president from early on. If you had to put money on it, you think the president wins re-election in 2020. Is that right?
0: I do. I think that at the end of the day, uh, people are going to decide by their pocketbooks. And you know there are issues that people care about. But at the end of the day, making sure they can put food on the table for their families uh, and and whether they can are able to get jobs to provide is, is what people care about. And so the main issues, people are going to look back and say, am I better off now uh, than I was four years ago. And I think the answer is clearly yes, under president Trump's leadership.
1: All right, Anthony, thank you so much for your time. Where can we find uh, more information about you? Uh, we can
0: go online at 45 group.com and, uh, also, uh, well, yeah, I guess 45 group.com.
1: <laughs> okay. That's a good place to start. All right. Thank you so much, Anthony. Uh, we'll be that's right fun. back after this quick break. Thank you guys so much. Stay tuned to the Buck Sexton Show. Hello, this is Harlan Hill. Thank you so much for listening to the Buck Sexton Show. It's always a privilege um, that Buck will lend me his mic when he is uh, on assignment elsewhere. He is in China currently, and um, you know, doing some very important work there. So I, I appreciate the enormous honor that he's bestowed me once again by letting me uh, speak to you all tonight. Um, you know, in my spare time, I spend a lot of time thinking about this movement, the Trump movement. Uh, my time today on air was really broken into a few different parts, how we got here as a movement, um, how we're doing as a movement, and how we keep the MAGA movement alive, how we re-elect the president in 2020, what are the most central issues to that, whether it's immigration, energy, uh, national security, um, and so on. Um, but I'm reminded every day that I'm here in Washington that we are behind enemy lines. Washington feels like a city that's under occupation. And you cannot understate or overstate the degree to which the establishment Republicans in D.C. hate Donald Trump. You can't overstate the degree to which Democrats hate him. uh, The degree to which the media hates him. He's a threat to their vision of the country. Concepts of open borders, cheap labor, and trade policy uh, almost killed the American middle class before Trump. Those bankrupt ideas are all shared by the ruling elites, regardless of party. This isn't a fight between left and right. It's not a political fight. It's not an ideological fight. It's a fight between those with power and privilege and those that were left behind. That's why this drain the swamp stuff, they they hate it the most. Look at the bastions of liberalism, the Northeast Corridor on the West Coast. Things are great here. Cities are booming. There's a construction crane on every corner. You go to the middle of the country, the forgotten bits of the country, and you'll see the country has been rotting from within. And finally, the American voter stood up and said that enough is enough. Not so unlike what we saw in Brexit in the UK. And the American voter slammed their fist on, their, on, the, on, the, on the voting booth, and they said, look at us. Pay attention to us. You have forgotten us for so long. You've sold us out for your own interests, and you've left us behind. And it was clear, it was, it was evident that especially when the alternative to the president was a woman with a 30-year track record of lies, deceit, and fraud, Hillary Clinton, that uh, this was a fork in the road. What the president's done is amazing. As I said earlier in the show, this is the most ambitious political revolution in generations. Our expectations were really high. We've accomplished a lot. The economy is booming. We have enormous growth exceeded 3%, 4 million plus new jobs. More Americans are employed now than ever in history. And many of those jobs are jobs that Democrats said that would never come back, whether it's the 500,000 new manufacturing jobs, 100,000 new oil and gas jobs, the wages that are going up. Even the New York Times had to admit that the president was right. The wages are finally going up for the first time. They're meaningfully going up for the first time in a decade. And no one's been left behind by the MAGA movement. Black unemployment is plunging. Hispanic unemployment has plunged 4.5%. Asian American unemployment has plunged 2%. Female unemployment has plunged. It's in near 3%. This is extraordinary, what we've done. And it's in no small part because of the tax cuts that we've, we've initiated to the largest in a generation Repealing the Obamacare mandate, negotiating and renegotiating better trade deals as the president promised, investing in oil production so that we finally have our energy independence, investing in our military, standing with our our allies in Israel, withdrawing from the Iran deal, bringing peace to the Korean Peninsula, doing what we can to peacefully topple the Venezuelan dictatorship defeating ISIS, responding to the chemical weapons of the Syrian regime by committing troops, keeping Russia at bay. The president has done an amazing job and that's why he deserves the enormous popularity that he has. And that's why I feel uh, incredibly optimistic about our prospects going into 2020. The state of this movement is incredibly strong. And I hope so that was your takeaway from today's show. Once again, my name is Harlan Hill. You can find me on Twitter, at Harlan. This is the Buck Saxton Show.